On this episode of China Unscripted, China seeks to create a new world order, and the Belt and Road is the key. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesta. And this podcast is sponsored by Drake Illusion. Drake Illusion is a software company that offers a cloud computing solution to manage all aspects of your business accounting, product management, inventory, and more. Drake Illusion ERP system is capable of replacing your QuickBooks and provides a solution that can grow with your business. An enterprise solution for your small or mid-sized company is now available at your fingertips. Now, joining us today is Tofi Saradin, a Lebanese graduate scholar enrolled in the Graduate School of International Development at Nagoya University, Japan. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, guys. So so you did a very interesting uh, research about, uh, to put it in layman's terms, I think you're basically saying China is forming a new world order. Yep. But uh, so the specific term you use is world systems theory. So so kind of kind of explain what that means and now like how China is forming a new world order. Sure. So uh, world systems theory is actually a uh, uh, school of thought in international relations, which was pioneered by a guy called Emmanuel Wallerstein in the 1970s and 80s. And it holds that just like dependency theory, the world is made up of core states and periphery states, but also semi-periphery states, those who are in the middle who may go one way or the other. Mm-hmm. And um, world systems theory is just one theory. It's not multiple ones. It's also called world systems analysis. And uh, it holds that states are illusory. There's no such thing as a state. It just demarcates particular zones of taxation and sometimes, you know, uh, linguistic differences, between, uh, you know, across stretches of land. But uh, in, es- in essence, uh, the world is one capitalist world system where you have core processes and these are high yielding processes. They generate a lot of revenue for wherever they're hosted as opposed to periphery processes, which don't generate as much uh, revenue and which don't require a lot of special training. For example, a core industry would be smartphones and a peripheral industry would be mining the ore for those smartphones. So one smartphone can have like a very small amount of ore uh, and it's multiple times the price of its weight in ore. Uh, but it requires a lot of specialized uh, technology to produce it and to market it as well. And so World Systems Theory holds that it's not particularly states that are core or peripheral, it's processes. And the more processes that are high yielding within a given boundary, the higher the status of that state on the core and periphery binary, if you will. So it's kind of like how China was pushing the whole made in China 2025 thing. They want more and more. Uh, it's like high-end com- manufacturing yeah, yeah. in China, and that helps China become powerful. Well, yes, high-end manufacturing does. It's a high, if, if it's a high-yielding uh, industry that it does elevate China's uh, China's uh, status or its standing in in the world. But China remains, according to world systems theory, a semi-periphery because it still can't quite assert itself without you know. It's still kind of weary of uh, of U.S. sanctions, of U sanctions, because that's where the money is. That's what, that's the key to its continued economic growth and its continued ascension. So it has to kind of play by the rules, you know, as, as visibly as it can, um, for better or for worse. 
uh, as it you know becomes more and more powerful. But in terms of China's manufacturing campaign, um, again, it depends on what what it's manufacturing. If it's manufacturing low grade goods, it doesn't really push it that much because low grade goods would be peripheral uh, products, and those would keep a country peripheral. So in terms of world systems theory, what are some of the core things that you want to be able to control as a country that would give you that would make you like more in the core and not periphery? Yes, that's a great question, uh, as all of them will be, of course. (laughs) I like this guy. What makes a country uh, a core state in world systems theory is its ability to project influence in multiple ways. The first way, of course, is economic dominance. It wants to dominate economically, not just within the borders itself, but across the borders. And economic dominance is done in three ways, and these happen in order. So let's take the example of China and Pakistan, which is what what my research currently is about. Um, In terms of economic dominance, there's three components. Production dominance, trade dominance, then financial dominance. Production dominance begins when the country that wants to become a core state can produce goods that are of a higher quality than the competition and can outdo whatever competition is there locally inside the periphery. So Huawei phones, for example, if they're outdoing Samsung and and the iPhone, it's kind of pushing away the the American grip. Also, if China is producing, uh, like other electronics, it's pushing away the EU, you know, Germany, Japan as well. Uh, not the EU, but you know what I mean. Um, so that's production dominance. It can also produce them in large quantities because China is a huge economy, whereas Pakistan has many issues when it comes to maintaining a high enough uh, level of production and a high enough quality of production. And so in Pakistan right now, Chinese goods are outdoing Pakistani goods. Mm-hmm. If they're the same, uh, if, if it's the same industry. So that's production dominance. Second is trade dominance. Um, and mind you, and mind you, for a country to be a core state with respect to a periphery, more must more money must be entering the core from the periphery than vice versa. And so when it comes to trade dominance, the core wants to be indispensable to the periphery, but the periphery can be dispensable to the core. So China right now is Pakistan's number one source of imports. However, this is not this is not uh, mutual. Pakistan is nowhere near China's number one source of imports. It's highest in agricultural imports from Pakistan. So as you know, China is not a country that has a lot of arable land. And as its um, economic situation improves, there'll be more demand for agricultural products. And this makes producers of agricultural goods such as uh, Vietnam, Thailand, Pakistan, uh, it makes their agriculture more in demand. And so right now, Pakistan is the third source of rice for China. So in this way, China is able to project um, its trade dominance over Pakistan. It's essentially being like, okay, Pakistan, I don't need you. You need me. You need these goods and my goods can outdo yours and can outdo the other country's goods. But I don't need your rice as much as I need Vietnam's rice or Thailand's rice. So you behave yourself. I know a lot of your research focused on China's relationship with the Middle East and North Africa. And so is it a case where China is trying to become, to these places, a core country? Yeah. I mean, uh, yes, certainly. Now, it's not being loud and obnoxious about its ambitions. 
but it is quietly making gains in Middle East and North Africa. You may have heard about the recent uh, pact that it made with Iran. China is trying to be on good terms with everybody in the region. And uh, China is interested in all the countries where it sees opportunity. Uh, Egypt, Algeria, Saudi Arabia, for different reasons. Saudi Arabia, obviously, for the energy sector, there's mutual investment in that regard. Also for infrastructure, China actually built a railway from Mecca to Medina uh, and, uh, a few years ago. So there's many opportunities for China to invest and to be a part uh, of um, economic activity there. In terms of other forms of dominance, this actually, going back to Shelley's question, another way that states project uh, their dominance is through something I call a new modi operandi or new modes of production. All hegemony is kind of project a new way of acting and thinking. In fact, an arbitration expert called uh, Shin Wei says that the BRI is is not as much as it's an infrastructure project, but it's also a way to socialize states. So it's making states think and act in a way that is more in line with how China runs things. Mm -hmm. And this one of the ways it does this is through stipulations in the BRI contracts that state that any kind of litigation regarding misunderstandings or regarding problems with BRI projects are to be resolved in Chinese courts. Mm. This means there's an expansion of China's jurisdiction across its borders to these places where BRI projects are happening. Further, in terms of the law of the sea, the United Nations uh, Convention on the Law of the Sea uh, states only entitled to so many nautical miles off its shore to extract and exploit resources. China does not agree with this because, as you know, it's uh, it wants all the South China Sea for itself. Now, um, so some Arab states are on board with this. They agree with China. And I don't think they're doing it uh, just on, you know, uh, just because of the idea of it. They're also doing it to kind of curry favor and with China and return some some perks, you know, here and there. So in these ways, China's kind of slowly molding these states. And, you know, the Gulf is um, monarchies where ruling is top down anyway. And China likes ruling top down. It's not very big on organic democracies from the bottom up. And so the Gulf and China, their relationship is, is good. It's going stronger. Uh, North Africa's, you know, it's on a case by case basis, especially with Libya now being uh, being the way it is. Um, but that's another way that China is uh, is uh, pro projecting itself. And yes, it certainly would like to be the core. But um, well, I can't really say what China's intentions are. But you know, if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck. But it's not really quacking like a duck yet. It's being a very quiet, well-behaved um, fowl, if I may. So when you said that the BRI is a way of uh, socializing countries, um, obviously China has other ways to do this to kind of influence countries to agree with them on their international issues or whatever. But I was thinking also of like the when Pakistan and the economic corridor there, like in your way of looking at things, was is BRI and like the CPEC, like they're primarily economic in nature and they just happen to have these other benefits? Or is this like a more concerted, like more strategic way for uh, the Chinese Communist Party to gain influence in the world? Like they're not just looking at this economically, but they're looking at it from all of these like kind of like power aspects. Uh, real quick, in case we haven't said it, BRI, Belt and Road Initiative. Mm hmm. Yes. 
Um, well, again, I can't say what the what the Communist Party's uh, intentions are. I can only look at the actions on the ground. So far, what it seems to me is that it it enters it entered Pakistan from the from the from the gateway of economic cooperation. Right after 2011, when Bin Laden was assassinated by the U.S. on Pakistani land, Pakistan faced a lot of international condemnation for hosting this terrorist over there. And so it found an ally in China then. And uh, even before this happened, China and Pakistan were stepping up their trade relations. But recently, the relationship has deepened much more so. And it's not only economic, uh, because even though I think China wants economic gains first, first and foremost, China is partnering with Pakistan's military. And Pakistan's military is now more assertive than it's ever been in a civilian government, because Pakistan's had military coups before. But right now, there's a civilian government. However, the military keeps getting more and more power. And also, it's, it's, it has more and more presence in autonomous regions of Pakistan, such as Balochistan. Balochistan, for those, of, for those who don't know, is an area that borders uh, Pakistan and Iran. And it's um, people, there's, there's secessionist movements there. And there's secessionist movements in China as well. And this makes, uh, and China is very allergic to secessionist movements. It hates them. It wants like a unity, even if it's an artificial unity. It just wants the bloc to remain the way it is. And so it's doing whatever it can to empower. Uh, I don't think it's doing whatever it can, but a consequence of China partnering with the military and having the military get all these extra perks through government, uh, through government um, legislation is that the military is able to assert control over these once tumultuous areas at Balochistan. In fact, if you look at CPEC, it runs from China's westernmost city of Kashgar through uh, Pakistan-occupied Kashmir. It ends in the port of Gwadar, which is in Balochistan. But the trajectory is, very, is a very cautious one. It doesn't go really deep into Balochistan. It, go, it goes in a straight line down to the coast, and then across the coast from Karachi to to Gwadar. And so um, in this way, China is transforming Pakistan politically as well. So it starts economically, then because politically, and the army is a very efficient instrument. It, it's a proxy, essentially. One more thing is that uh, recently, so in Pakistan, like I said, usually areas are quite uh, autonomous. However, there was a motion passed recently in the Pakistani Senate to create a centralized body that would govern national development initiatives. It's called the National Development Coastal Authority. Uh, however, what's interesting is that each city along the coast of Pakistan has its own development office. And so this whole initiative to centralize power within the government Many many critics have said it's just uh, it just makes it easier for China to control the whole country by strengthening the government's control over the country. So that's another political consequence of uh, of CPEC. Also, and that's the CPEC is the China uh, Pakistan Economic Corridor. China Pakistan Economic Corridor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's interesting you're talking about how uh, the Belt and Road is uh, affecting the the politics in uh, in these states. Because uh, I've heard the analysis that, uh, you know, the Belt and Road goes through Xinjiang. And I've heard that a lot of the reason the Communist Party is cracking down in Xinjiang is to create a stable environment for the Belt and Road. So as you were mentioning, this is very interesting how the economic uh, beginnings of the Belt and Road inevitably transform into political aspiration. Of course, yes. So I guess the question is, 
you know, the Chinese Communist Party, obviously, through the Belt and Road, is trying to influence the politics of these countries. Meanwhile, you have uh, the Western world also trying to have a degree of influence on these countries, but those usually come with uh, certain humanitarian or human rights concerns as well. China doesn't have that. So how how is this affecting all of these countries being tied up by the Belt and Road? Well, um, as you said, um, when we talk about aid and foreign direct investment, some states like the EU, for example, they place a high importance on um, social justice, on human rights, on democracy, so on and so forth. For China, it's all about economic development. For Ch China thinks that the way to develop a country is through economic development. But International Development 101 says that if you just pump money into a state with existing inequalities, you're going to the, those inequalities become greater because whoever controls like the factories or whatever, the managers will get richer. The workers might not see such such a big increase in their wages. Similarly for ethnic violence or things like that, I'm not optimistic about it. Um, but when it comes to governance processes, China is not like um, well, it's a, interestingly enough, Ch China doesn't really export its ideals as aggressively as the United States when it comes to women's rights, for example, because in China, because of the one-shot policy, women have had to enter the workplace as well, whereas China is, is entering alliances with Iran, for example, which is a very sexist country and also has economic relations with Saudi Arabia, and it doesn't really put pressure on them to... Um, to Im improve the status of certain minorities there. It just wants stability. Get it done whatever way you want it to get done, but I want stability so I can invest. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that China cares about women's rights in China either. I mean, the the whole like bringing, having people, women work, it's a, it's a production issue. It's that you can essentially mobilize, and this was Mao's theory too, that you can then you, essentially you can mobilize like the entire population instead of only half the population as the workers, right? So if the uh, Communist Party cared about women's rights, they wouldn't force them to be sterilized or force them to have abortions. No, or like just even this whole campaign to like try to make women have like guilt women into having babies younger is because they're looking at it from the perspective of what is best for the state, like what is best for like for the party state. Right. So I'm I'm not surprised that they don't have a problem with how Ar Iran treats women because they would if if circumstances were different, they would not have a tr trouble treating women the same way. Maybe I uh, but also on the point of politics in these in these states, um, Depending on how influential the West remains in the states where the BRI is, China will become the hegemony. This is this is my whole argument: is that through the Belt and Road, China is creating a new world system um, where it will be the core, and it will have these peripheries, which are all indentured to it, and and China calls the shots in them, and this is all for economic gain uh, and economic gain. But also, if it exports its ideology, like the way Iran does, Iran exports its revolutionary Islamic ideology to get itself more credibility on the world stage. Like, oh, we're not the only ones who believe in this. So does so does so do the Houthis. So does Hezbollah. So it's either all of us are this way or none of us are this way. You know, Iran's a lot more aggressive and difficult in this regard. But uh, but maybe I don't know that much about China's history of trying to export its uh, its model. But this is, uh, in the least, this is what I can tell you, is that it looks like 
China has the components to become a hegemony and a new Belt and Road Initiative. I call it the BRI bound world system. So it's going to be a world system comprised of these states, which have a lot of, um, which have at least one Belt and Road project ha- uh, occurring right now. And uh, how a state becomes peripheralized, so to, it becomes a periphery of China, is after uh, what world systems theory outlines the indicators that have to be met. Uh, we talked about production dominance, economic dominance, new modes of operation. There's also a very important factor in all hegemonies have had across ta- across uh, across the ages, shall we say. Um, so world system world systems analysis essentially is a historical analysis tool. It's not only about international relations, it also looks at history at long periods of history. And the first hegemony was the United Provinces, which is today the Netherlands. There... Um, they rallied peripheries not only economically and with law, but also around an anthem, a cause, a general interest. And the general interest of the United Provinces at the time was state sovereignty, right? So Treaty of Westphalia, respect my my borders, I'll respect yours. China's general, the U.S. The, the U.S.'s general interest is democracy, and whereas oh, we have to spread democracy, democracy around the world. Um, China's general interest is infrastructure. Because China has the capacity and has the uh, has the surplus production in steel and other infrastructure not raw material and has the framework to export a lot of infrastructure and to construct a lot of infrastructure at a time when the world needs a lot of infra- needs a lot of it in Asia it needs I saw like an estimate of um, billions of dollars of necessary infrastructure investment Africa same thing. Asian sta- some certain Asian states alone cannot satisfy their own infrastructure needs. Cambodia, Myanmar, uh, Laos, uh, Nepal, they don't have the revenue to, to fund their own infrastructure needs. Japan, of course, does. This is why Japan is not as influenced by China. But these countries need China, and China China's general interest is infrastructure. It's not saying, oh... Um, you know, you should respect uh, women or you should, uh, you should, uh, you know, this is the Declaration of Human Rights or whatever. It just says, hey, you need a railway and I can build it for you. But also, of course, a consequence of this is that in its pursuit of the most efficient ways of governance, it I think it regards democracy as secondary in importance. As long as the policy gets passed, I don't think it cares how it gets passed, as long as it gets passed. It's interesting when you compare the philosophies uh, of these general interests, because like the U.S. is is this sort of idea of democracy and power to the to the individuals, individual liberty, individual liberty, you know, the the Netherlands, for what it's worth, you know, sovereignty and, and respect for for that. And like China's is like this very Marxist materialist means of production philosophy, right, that has nothing to do with the people. Well, it's was... all about like creating material goods, uh, and which of course benefits China, but also it's it's just a very materialistic Marxist philosophical idea when compared to what the U.S. and the Netherlands. That's are, yeah, are that's interesting because I was thinking when you were talking, Dofi, that like you know infrastructure is not really an ideology, but you're saying Matt that you think it, it, it is. It sounds from what you're saying, Tofi, that it is ideological. That infrastructure is like like the goal is is more material goods versus a sort of liberty or sovereignty mm. idea. Even mm. though 
those rails that they are building are garbage and fall apart. The bridges fall apart. Yeah, but but they do benefit China, so it doesn't matter. Well, this I've never really thought about it from from uh, that point of view. When I think Marxism, I think means of production, and yeah, China doesn't have the means of production in this regard. So, but uh, certainly, I would agree with you that that China's the general interest is more materialistic than other hegemonies of the past. Uh, unless you think that, uh, unless you consider that uh, the state as a material, you know, structure would would also safeguard whatever material production is going on inside it, which makes the United Provinces also um, materialistic in, in, in what it propagated. And also the U.S. idea of democracy and human rights maybe wanted to, uh, maybe was leading up to the optimal functioning of a state is one that is democratic and respects human rights. So the, the, the states that have would have the highest revenue, and the highest um, human development index are those that have human rights and uh, and our democracies, which is, um, you know, true for the most part. Right. Although I would say correlation, yes. Causation perhaps is a bit more complex. Mm, exactly. Exactly. Uh, international affairs is uh, it's not STEM. You know, there's many things that could be happening. And when we try to, you know, draw, draw a little you know, theories here and there. Um, yeah. So according to your research, what ultimately will happen as China becomes uh, more of a, he uh, a hegemony, as it gets all of these uh, more and more periphery states under its control, as that uh, rams up against sort of a, a Western democratic hegemony, these two competing powers? They, yes. Um, so... Just off the bat, I can tell you that Mandarin will be more widely spoken. Chandama. Um, the way the word, the, the phrase, okay, you know what I mean? Okay. Mm. Uh, people use it a lot, even in Japan, even where I'm from, just okay. And I think the okay is like a nugget of American linguistic hegemony. Mm. Um, so I think in, in, you know, in maybe 20, 30 years time, if things remain the way they are, you'd have uh, maybe Kenyans saying xie xie or, uh, or Pakistanis. Because certainly um, right now in Pakistan, uh, the Senate passed a resolution that states that the learning of Mandarin should be more facilitated for government contractors who are working in CPEC, which, which are like tens of thousands of people. So this is a huge injection of Mandarin. That's one thing. Um, another one would be perhaps yuanization, so more transactions done in the yuan as opposed to the dollar. This is also part of financial dominance, which goes back to economic dominance. You'd have more of the world's reserves kept in China. So now a lot of the world's, world's gold reserves are kept in the U.S. But as China advances more and more in creating this BRI band world system, a lot of the world's money will be kept in the U.S. And also China will have more control of the world's assets. Actually, in Pakistan, for example, uh, China bought um, a huge stake in Pakistan's stock exchange. They'll just be more looking eastward instead of looking westward. Uh, I haven't really seen, like the one thing that I, in my limited research, the one thing that I've seen the West has a clear advantage over China is media and being cool. You know what I mean? That kind of cultural hegemony thing. But the West, it's a hit and miss. Like in Lebanon, for example, Liking the West is 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 the political thing. If you like, if you if you want to emulate Western people and you listen to you know bands and and stuff like that, 
it, it could associate you with being okay with um, America's support for Israel. And Israel is not popular where I'm from. And so I think China can take advantage of where the West has failed because it has failed in some places, you know, in some, some parts, um, the U S talks about human rights and democracy, but at the same time, Saudi Arabia just allowed women to drive a few years ago. So, um, I don't, yeah, I mean, there's, it's some places are really fertile for China to come in and be like, okay, I'm your new hegemony now, but it's not going to do that as forcefully because, Again, the EU and the US have a much more established presence on the world stage, especially in the Middle East. And in, the, if, in my research article, I argue that China has the power to make Lebanon one of its peripheries, but it failed to do so because it was already crushing competition from, uh, from the US and the EU. In fact, um, here's an example. In Lebanon, okay, the de facto governors of the country is Hezbollah. Hezbollah is an Iran-backed militia. Now, the problem is that Hezbollah is backing a corrupt government, and uh, the president, his son-in-law, was beautifully slapped recently with American sanctions for corruption. Yet Hezbollah keeps backing him, and, and Iran keeps backing Hezbollah. When we had our revolution in 2019 that called for a better state, Hezbollah, the, the leader of Hezbollah, went on TV and said that we should look east towards China and its investments and not look at the West anymore. And this is because China does have the capacity, he thinks, to create uh, you know, more um, power plants and bridges and so on and so forth. At a time when Lebanon still does not have 24-hour electricity and we could really use the power plants. But after I did my research to find out why these projects haven't happened, there's many political and economic hurdles that China faces when dealing with Lebanon, such as a tumultuous political situation, such as the, the pre preeminence of the US and the EU, certain and their proxies preventing Chinese investment in this way. Um, so Lebanon is kind of like, is looks like it's going to be the border of the Belt and Road uh, bound world system. Like it's not going to completely take it. Maybe it'll focus on one place that I think is the port of Tripoli for, for various reasons, but uh, that is one like battleground uh, right there. So it's not going to be a complete one if the, if the West maintains its grip for better or for worse. Do you see other places like this in the Middle East where it's not going to be, because China is pretty new to kind of coming to the Middle East specifically, uh, and it's a complicated place with a lot of complicated histories, as you were, were mentioning. So are there other places you see in the Middle East where it's going to be maybe tougher for China to get in than it was for them in other parts of Africa or Southeast Asia, places like that? Interestingly enough, Syria has yet to sign on to the Belt and Road Initiative, even though Syria and China are, you know, they're allies in multiple ways. But I think in Syria, because there's so many players, there's Turkey, there's Russia, there's Iran right now, the U.S. presence is still there. You have the Kurds who are being more assertive. Um, China's also maybe finding a hard time, uh, finding a hard time, uh, you know, getting getting into there as well. But apart from that, I don't think there's going to be like a massive transformation of one Middle Eastern state into a complete Chinese uh, uh, Chinese periphery. I don't think it's it's the case yet. However, through China's partnership with Iran, and through Iran's influence on Iraq, Yemen, Lebanon, and Syria. This could be a gateway of, of propagating Chinese uh, influence through through Iran. 
uh, other other states don't have that much um, proxy power in the Middle East. Well, I'm curious how China is able to, kind of as Shelley was saying, manage all of these different factions in the Middle East. For instance, China is invested in Iran and Saudi Arabia and Israel. That doesn't really seem like those all go together. That's right. They don't. But, uh, well, China's policy is a lot like Japan's policy in that um, because they're, they're strangers in this neighborhood, they want to make good relations with everyone. And the, the governors of those states are aware of this. They are aware they, they, they are aware that China can't possibly miss out on the Saudi Gulf market. You know, the, the governors of Iran know that, oh, China's obviously not going to miss out on the Saudi oil market. And Saudi Arabia knows that, oh, China obviously can't miss out on Iran's influence and also Iran's liquefied natural gas, which has it has a lot of. And once the sanctions are waived, bam, you're going to see liquefied natural gas moving across the borders like crazy. So the governors there are fully aware, are, are mature enough, you know, as a governor should be, to understand that China wants money. It just wants to conduct business. It doesn't really... It doesn't really care much about the the problems on the ground. It doesn't, you know, its heart doesn't bleed for the Palestinians, or it's not a Zionist state per se. It's an atheist country, so it doesn't really care about everyone's religion. It just wants business to be conducted, and it wants a stable environment. Which is why I'm cautiously optimistic about China entering the the area because it means that the governors in the in the Middle East will, will like be quick to like stabilize things. Okay, okay, guys. Calm down. We don't need uh, financial aid from the EU anymore. We, we, you know. So now China's coming. We need to really behave ourselves because what's happened before, I think, is that the EU is right next to the Middle East. Chaos in the Middle East means refugees to the EU. The EU does not want refugees, so the EU sends aid to the Middle East to stabilize it. What the corrupt government governors do is that they siphon a lot of this aid and they give just enough for things to stay like the way they are. You know what I mean? They doesn't really improve them, but doesn't make them worse. And um, a lot of I argue that a lot of Lebanese politicians' fortunes are made off of Europeans' taxes, uh, and and you know, in that kind of vicious cycle. But when it comes to China, it, it China doesn't doesn't you know give aid. It finances projects. It doesn't invest as much as in Europe or, or America, but it finances projects selectively, cautiously, and it does so with, with, with the money of the people because a lot of companies are state-owned enterprises. So it doesn't have that much money to give as bribes or whatever. And I think it's failed to do so uh, in Lebanon. It, there's, not, there's only one BRI project in Lebanon, which is a conservatory for of music, which is much appreciated, but it's not like... Um, it's not nuclear power plants. Yes, yeah, not nuclear power plants or, or 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 anything like that. Although we do have like um, some Mandarin courses being taught at universities, but uh, and actually exports to China are increasing. And in Lebanon, we could use all the export destinations we can get. So it sounds like what you're saying is that the European investment in Lebanon and other parts of the Middle East is done so poorly that Chinese investment is actually marginally better? Hmm. I wouldn't call it European investment. I'd call it European aid. So aid is a type of investment, but you're, I mean, because you're, in theory, the aid is supposed to help the people on the ground. Stabilize the place. But it's instead just enriching, it's enriching certain people who already have some means. But you had also said earlier in the podcast that, that Chinese investment also tends to enrich people who already have 
means it, mm -hmm. it, and it doesn't reduce inequality. So mm -hmm. basically, no matter who invests uh, in the Middle East, the people on the ground are getting screwed and the people who already have money are just going to make more. How's that? <laughs> I think it's on a case by case basis. I think that um, a power plant, for example, stands to it doesn't make things as worse as a project that is uh, that is the result of a deal struck by a warlord, for example. Power plants, if they're owned by the state, would produce revenue for the state. But if the person in charge of the Ministry of Energy is corrupt, then they might leech off of that. But but the way uh, certain governments are structured prevents China from from. Uh, or prevents the state from, from enriching itself in this manner. Like, we're not going to have a Sri Lanka situation because our ports are, are all owned by the state, and the state is unwilling to give China what's called a uh, sovereign... Uh, Basically, the 99-year lease, where essentially China controls it. Sovereign guarantee, which means that if China doesn't, you know, which means that the state itself strikes the loan deal with uh, with China. And uh, Lebanon has, has so far not done so. In terms of the entire Middle East, I can't really say, but I will say that economic de development alone, it, I mean, I wish it would solve all the problems on the, on the ground. But if you take, for example, the Israel-Palestine issue and you economically develop both areas, it's not going to change, um, you know, the idea that settlers have. They can just like take this land. They'll just go with segways instead of on foot. You know what I mean? As long as certain ideologies and certain, certain deeply healthy, theocratic um impulses are there, no matter how much money or how much development you put into a place, things will just manifest in, in different ways. And this is the limitation of China's uh, development model, I think. It's interesting because, like, China will say, like, it says it supports Palestine. Like, that's their official position, right? They, they are, like, sympathetic or supportive of the Palestinian issue. But that's not going to stop them from wanting to get get do business with Israel and all their high-tech companies. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a great point. I mean, they have, uh, you know, they've done the good uh, soundbite here and there. Of like, oh, you know, Jerusalem is the capital of Palestine, but they don't put word, they don't, um, they talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk, and they don't talk the talk that often or that assertively. You know what I mean? Like, Iran talks the talk very assertively to the point of nausea. And uh, it walks the walk very sloppily, whereas China talks the talk. It does, you know, it does some financing in the Palestinian territories, but its main, you know, uh, but its main business is with Israel in that area. So I think it did the whole Palestine thing as a way to be a champion for the global south and to get favor from the Palestinians there who, who feel betrayed by the West. Like... Um, you know, uh, the same West that champions human rights and uh, and democracy and whatever is failing to stop uh, settler violence and stuff like that. Not that there's not violence on both sides, there is. Uh, but um, when I talk to people on the ground, they say, if they're so good, why don't they stop the settlers? Just make a law to stop the, the settlements. Why do they keep? Why do they keep going on? And uh, mind you, though. Uh, I don't think China's again. I don't think China's that passionate about what either person is doing, what either entity is doing. It just, you know, sees a neighborhood and it wants to renovate. It wants to invest. You know what I mean? So, um, 
I think it was just a sound bite to, to get the Global South champion points. I think it's interesting what you said earlier about how you thought that it might get better because China comes into the Middle East and it's like a pra pragmatic thing. But how does this kind of because like the other thing that like is one, I think, of the few things that China, the Chinese Communist Party is especially keen on is non-interference and in other countries affairs uh, because they don't want anybody else interfering in their affairs in their when when they talk about that. So. Um, it seems like they wouldn't actually want to make any moves in the Middle East for that reason. Yes, very much so. Um, China does adhere very strongly to non-interference, uh, but the more it's involved in the Middle East, the more danger, the more like shaky this commitment becomes. Because if you strike a military pact with Iran, and you just say, "Oh, it's just between me and Iran," you know, blah blah blah. But what if Iran? you know, conducts an aggression against Saudi Arabia or against Iraq, what then, China? Well, are you sure you can fulfill this commitment? So um, China's really walking on eggshells when it comes to non-interference. And non-interference, what does that really mean? You know what I mean? I mean, does non-interference mean boots on the ground in another country's state? Or does it mean aggressive investment in another, country's, uh, in another country that would uh, disenfranchise some people there and benefit China? So I think... Non-interference is, um, it sounds noble and cute, but I, I don't think it's sincere. And I don't think that interference can occur just militarily, but also very much economically. We're, we're witnessing an economic war right now. And uh, there's certainly interference on all, uh, uh, from all sides to all sides. Well, as you mentioned in world systems theory, uh, a core state can have many ways to influence periphery states. It doesn't have to be militarily. It's so interesting because I just saw this article on Xinhua last week about how China will never become a hegemony. And it, that was basically the only thing it said. It was just like, we will never have a hegemony. We will never have spheres of influence. We're just not going to do this. It's, it's like China's never going to militarize islands in the South China Sea. Hmm. <laughs> I think it depends. Um, well, Xinhua, you know, we know, we all know who who runs Xinhua, and I think it's a very clever thing for China to say that, oh, we're not doing anything, we're just doing business. You know what I mean? But if you look at the footprints, you know where the trajectory is, and people have have termed China's moves as going towards a reluctant hegemony, like it doesn't really want it, but it might get it. Mm -hmm. Like China's trying to be trying to look as harmless as possible to the West, you know, like not like Russia. Russia doesn't care. Russia's like, uh, Crimea is mine. What you know? China's a lot more polite because China depends more on revenue from uh, from the U.S. and the West. Well, except for Taiwan. Taiwan belongs to them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. Yeah, Tibet also, and yeah. uh, and Xinjiang also, and I mean, you know, I, I respect. I, you know, I respect that. I'm not here to challenge these these claims, but uh, they're autonomous regions for a reason, um, at least as autonomous as they can be. Well, so also from the lens of uh, world systems theory, uh, you know, so it's interesting because like the U the U.S. essentially, let's call it the, the global hegemon. But then you have smaller uh, from the U.S. perspective, semi-periphery or periphery states. Uh, but they are also trying to gain become in a way their own core states. So China versus India, those are the two big regional powers in the Indo-Pacific. 
a lot of China's interests in Pakistan is to to make sure India doesn't become the core state of the Indo-Pacific. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, there's uh, there's a whole uh, field in world systems theory, not a field, but like there's all sub study about how some peripheries compete to reach the top because there's a lot there's not a lot of room in the core. You know, like at one point Spain was a core, and then it then it slipped down. It's a it's pyramidal for a reason, and not everybody can be in the core. So. Indeed, uh, there is, uh, you know, heavy balancing going on, and that is certainly one uh, one encouragement for uh, China and Pakistan to deepen their relationship, which is, uh, you know, when they first established relations in the 50s, it was primarily um, military-based to balance India. And that's why China gave uh, Pakistan nuclear know-how and, and missiles and stuff like that. So you were, you were saying the ways a core state influences the periphery is, is through... Was it uh, economics, trade, and finance? So those fall under economic dominance, production, trade, and finance. The economic dominance. Then there's the modi operandi, which is uh, the you know uh, new uh, legal codes, uh, also the yuanization, uh, using yuan more, socializing the states essentially. Also, uh, other institutions, which like the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, being a counterpart to, for example, the IMF. It can also finance projects without the constraints of the IMF. Uh, so these alternative institutions are part of this alternative world system. How China tries to si- uh, sino size other places, in other words? I, I don't think they... Hmm, I don't know what its intentions... I can't say what its intentions are. I can, only sh- I can only tell you what the data is so far. I can't tell you, oh, it wants to do this and it wants to do that. It, it seems very very likely that this is its intention, at least with states like Pakistan, which are so important to it. Well, I think what I was what I was getting at is, is you're talking about how the core influences the periphery. You have economic things. And then it seems like what you were describing is sort of changing the way a country thinks. What's next? The general gen, the general interest of infrastructure that, that I, I spoke about earlier. Um, and there's other manifestations, you know, Gramsci and Wallerstein agree that culture and language are also manifestations of hegemony. So this goes into uh, cultural exchanges between countries. Um, I haven't seen it that strongly because I haven't looked at it that well. But I think that is the weak point of China is 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 like cultural soft power. And it failed in the Middle East to really implant cultural soft power. It may be more successful in Pakistan, especially because Pakistan has a lot of... Uh, WeChat users and a lot of um, a lot of schools that are making Mandarin obligatory. It's no longer just oh you can either take English or Mandarin. No, you will take Mandarin in addition to whatever other languages. And also through through legislation that makes uh, that the Senate took, as I mentioned, to make people who work in CPAC learn Mandarin quicker, which are tens of thousands of people. So this will permanently uh, change Pakistan. What the U.S. can do in this regard, if 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 we're talking about what the U.S. can and and uh, should do. One of the few advantages the U.S. Ha- still has left in Pakistan is that the U.S. is Pakistan's number one export destination. So long as this is the case, uh, China's peripheralization remains imperfect. But as soon as, but China's uh, exports from Pakistan, China's imports from Pakistan are increasing as China changes what Pakistan is producing. So under economic and trade production, 
you have changing of not only what is produced, but how much of it is produced to satisfy the course demand. So if China wants more rice, it will you it will change, it will like make Pakistan produce more rice for it at the expense of, for example, car factories or core processes that would empower Pakistan. So what America could do is invest in core processes in Pakistan that would kind of empower it against China and be like, okay, no, I will not be weaker than you. I can do this and I can do that. You know what I mean? But this, I'm not saying that this is what should happen. I'm just saying these are um, strategies that could be considered. Well, so you meant we were talking earlier how, uh, you know, the economic, let's use, let's use uh, Pakistan as an example. China's economic influence there creates political influence. Uh, and it seems like that political influence can also potentially lead to military influence. The port of Gwadar, China, it seems, wants that for a potential deep water port for its navy. Yes, that's a great point. Uh, the port of Gwadar is very versatile. Now, on paper, depending on who you read, it says the, the port of Gwadar is actually a very good strategic point for multiple reasons. On the trade side, it's right next to the Arab Gulf. Also, uh, exports from Pakistan are not tariffed as heavily as China's exports. And the, the, the right now, where it stands, China gets more than 80% of revenue from when it completes the port of Gwadar. So it's going to like use Gwadar as a sock puppet to export its own products and get revenue that would have otherwise been lessened because of higher tariffs on itself. When it comes to military, um, India, of course, is the most wary of this happening. But... Uh, I, I, despite China shifting more resources towards becoming a naval power, which is a market that Germany is, is becoming a naval power, um, there haven't been very strong indicators that this is what's going to happen. It might, but according to what I've read, there's more data to suggest that it's going to be a, a, a primarily a trade port than a military port. Maybe there's, maybe it might become both. I'm not sure, but according to my research, where it stands right now, it's it's a trade port. Well, practically, I would think that would have to happen after China settles the Taiwan issue, for instance. I guess the ultimate question is, you know, China, in the context of today's world, you're calling it a, a semi-periphery state, mm -hmm. trying to become uh, a hegemony, a core state. Is it possible for China, through its Belt and Road and other, other things they're doing, to actually succeed in surplanting the West or the U.S. as the world's core state? Mm. That is a topic of much discussion among world systems scholarship and also, you know, international relations theory at, at large. This largely depends on the actions of the West. The, China has a clear trajectory. It is export. It wants to increase its exports and go global. Because it wants to increase its exports and go global, it has to kind of change the politics on the ground there to make it the most receptive to Chinese interests and to Chinese demands. Um, what happens in these countries depends to a large extent on what the West does. I saw recently that the US has launched the Clean Energy Initiative, and it signed up with a with 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 like a dozen or so states, including Japan. And Japan is the keenest on stopping China in this regard. But I haven't seen much uh, much oomph. You know what I mean? It's not that forceful yet. Um, so the question of whether China will replace the U.S. is that it depends.
it depends and if it does happen it will be slow it will not be uh, it will not be a process overnight because in west africa for example you have france as the hegemony and france is not going to sit by as, as china comes and takes over its previous turf even russia which which china allies with closely they dispute over central asia over the stands mm -hmm. because russia wants them to remain their periphery so um i don't think china will get there anytime soon because even its closest friends don't really want it to get there iran even iran at its at its inception at the inception of like modern day iran 1979 the ayatollah at the time warned of the west and of china so you know it's um it will be tricky for china to get to that level but when it comes to an economic hegemony or or um some cer certain goals here and there china has a good chance of achieving them uh, especially because China has so much infrastructure building capacity, even though they're shoddy and some of them, you know, there's checkered success here and there. Uh, if the West does not provide an alternative, then uh, countries on the ground, if whether or not they're bribed, whether or not they're bribed, may choose something shaky than nothing at all. And um, certainly, the, you know, uh, that would be the test of the West is to outdo China in that regard. When it comes to Lebanon, for example, one reason that China has not fully, you know, was not able to penetrate is because Lebanon is really close to the EU and it's in the EU's best interest that Lebanon remains stable. And so when the EU approaches Lebanon with deals, it approaches them with low interest rates, but high costs because European labor is more expensive than Chinese labor, whereas China is new to the market. So it approaches with high interest rates because it wants to be cautious, but with very low labor costs for reasons such as maybe, you know, prisoners working on these and so on and so forth. Uh, but that's, you know, the competition is, uh, the battlefield is economic, you know, ideology, I think, um, comes second because you do have dictatorships that supervise, that, that, that rule over, um, you know, arguably prosperous places, not the most humane places, but, you know, prosperous places. And so I think the, 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 the battle is, is economic at this point. And the West has to unite right now. I think there's a, there's a, the West is divided, um, you know, uh, Trump after Biden means like a switching of foreign policy uh, goals. And this means that the U.S. has less time to run after China in, in, in the direction that it would have if it was one, you know, consistent policy. Even though the U.S. has something called efficient, efficient, uh, what's it called? It's efficient systems behind the scenes that make sure that at least 70 percent of what happens stays the same no matter who's in charge. But, um, you know, so long as there's division in the West, um, I think that China, China has like sees like a clear way to, to run forward. And this ties into its strong alliance with Russia and Iran, both of which tried to influence uh, elections in the States, but also tried to, Iran right now is trying to influence elections in Scotland to force uh, another independence referendum to further, you know, divide uh, the West. Of course, China does not interfere in other countries' political affairs. Uh -huh. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it sounds like we're kind of leaving behind what's been called like the Pax Americana and headed into a future where rather than there being one major core power, you have smaller core powers all competing for each other, against each other. Yes, exactly. In fact, the pioneer of world systems theory, Wallerstein, claimed that in 1991 of all times when the Soviet Union was defeated, or like was not defeated, sorry, it was uh, ended, 
he said that 1991 was the end of Pax Americana, even though it was when America was at its most victorious. Uh, and people thought, you're insane, you know, like, you know, how is this the end when they just won? But it's because the whole system changed and they had to start over from scratch again. And right now, you see there's dents in the Amer in America and Western hegemony when Russia can just take Crimea, for example, when Russia can interfere in uh, Syria, for example, when uh, China can strike deals with Iran, for example. These are all dents in America's hegemony that are being seeped into by, you know, these gaps are being taken advantage of. Also, when it comes to institutions, uh, Pakistan, for example, many countries owe China more money than the IMF. Oh, and, it, you know, so the competition is uh, is uh, multifaceted. It is the end of Pax Americana, I think. But the decline is the, the decline. Like who is number two or number three remains to be seen. The EU is not something to underestimate, even though they're very peaceful and, and whatever. They're still a force to be reckoned with. It, economically, as one unified bloc, they're the biggest economy. Um, but uh, I think that, you know, Russia, the EU, uh, China, it's such a thrilling race to watch, but uh, with serious consequences, of course, for liberty and for democracy and things like that. But it, it scholarship scholarship is, is, is uh, divided on Pax Americana, particularly because one, one theory, one scholar named Gowen published in 2004, that uh, there will be no end of Pax Americana. America will remain the number one power because in the 90s and in the 70s, it created instruments with which to rein in rising competition. Japan was booming, for example, in the 80s. Uh, but then uh, he says that certain financial agreements or certain, like somehow America strong-armed Japan into staying number two. Um, through through certain um, stipulations that remain in effect to this day. Germany, same thing in the 70s. So the the trade war currently be between China and America is chi is America's effort at reining in China through through these financial instruments it has. The dollar is still like the most widely used currency. You have the Bretton Woods. Uh, you have the Bretton Woods as well. Uh, so America has many tools in its arsenal. It's not something to underestimate. It just has to, I think, unite. Once it does that and has a clear policy, then maybe the decline will be will cease or will uh, or will happen slower. Uh, one final question for me, at least. Um, earlier, you said you um, sort of the definition of like a core state is one that has. Uh, where the periphery depend economically on it, not the other way around. How does that apply to a situation like the United States and China, where there is a massive trade deficit? Mm, exactly. Um, this makes the world. This, this makes the Chinese world system different from the USSR US situation. So there's not going to be like that much aggression between them because they they do need each other. Um, as China is a semi-periphery, it needs the states more than uh, more than the other way around. Even though. Uh, both are the number one source of um, uh, one number one trade partners in certain respects. So I'm not quite sure. All I can tell you is that China is an ambitious semi-periphery, and it wants enough fuel to make it to the top, but it has to behave itself. And um, there is such a thing as supply and demand at the end of the day. No matter where ideologies stand, there is supply and demand. If something is cheap enough, even if it's made by Lucifer, people might buy it, you know? It is interesting that in terms of the China-U.S. trade and investment and all this stuff, I think China, the Chinese Communist Party understands very clearly that 
it has certain economic advantages that it's it's trying to exploit. Like the desire for Western companies, for U.S. companies to go to China for cheap manufacturing for the China market, that kind of stuff. But then it kind of it comes up against the U.S. dollar dominance of the world, like all of these fact that the systems are kind of are more uh controlled by the u.s dollar essentially so uh one of the things that uh, some chinese academics have been talking about lately is the need to get people to come invest in china in order to get that dependence on china in terms of like we should have wall street banks come in here and set up you know, investment funds and things like that, because then we kind of control, like, it's our playground, essentially. Like, right now, they feel like, financially, they're still playing on the U.S.'s playground. And they will be for as long as there's dollar, the dollar is the dominant world currency. So so we're, you're saying we have the best swing sets? It's going to take a long time for China to build swing sets. Yeah. But that doesn't mean and they're not going to do gonna... it with slave labor. Well, but they're going to start now. Yeah. Yeah. They started a while ago as well. Yeah, they started a while ago. It's interesting to look at self-sufficient states like I Iran for example, because of US sanctions has had to rely more on its own self. And so even though it's an oil economy, it diversified its economy as much as it could in order to like for these different parts in Iran to meet each other's supply and demand. Uh, so if given the impetus, um, states with the capacity to to like chameleon or like completely change their their uh, composition based on internal supply and demand may may do so with some success because China wants to like export all of its stuff. Is going to have to accommodate all of the world. And right now, the people who run most of the world is the West. Well, that was very fascinating. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. I'm going to put a link to uh, your report in the description below. But um, for anyone watching who would like to learn more about you or world systems theory, where should they go? Well, world systems theory, they should read Emmanuel Wallerstein. Let's look him up. Uh, Christopher Chase Dunn is also a very good the world system. He's a, also a pioneer, really. Um, me, I'm just Dufit uh, Thirid Dean from Lebanon, and uh, you can find me on LinkedIn uh, if you would like. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, thank you for joining us today. This was very interesting, a really unique way to look at uh, China's rise. Thank you so much. I hope I didn't uh, bore anyone with my jargon, and uh, I'm glad I could contribute a little bit to the channel. Thank you so much. Well, so that was all very interesting, and you know what it reminded me of? I'm afraid Firefly, where everyone speaks like a little bit of Mandarin. No, that's a good comparison. No, in some ways, I'm serious about this, it reminds me of Star Wars, because Star Wars been watching Clone Wars a lot lately. Okay. Uh, you have, there are the core worlds, and then there's the mid-rim worlds, and then the outer rim, okay. which is where a lot of the original trilogy tri takes place. And yeah, the, the core worlds have uh, all kinds of economic and political influence over all the other ones, especially because at the further out you go, they're not as connected through trade routes and the like. And yeah. I do remember there was a lot about trade in there was. Star Wars. Well, mentioned. yeah, that's because like sort of the uh, mid and outer rim world started to unify uh, under like this uh, trade federation to combat the core, the core worlds, the uh, 
Galactic Republic that was trying to in, uh, like, uh, enforce its influence over those worlds. So what you're saying is George Lucas is actually a pioneer of world systems theory? That's exactly, well, galactic systems oh, theory. Oh, okay, yes. Worlds systems. World <laughs> systems theory. Yeah. So who's, who's the Sith Lord in this story? The one really pulling the strings. Jiang Zemin. Uh, or like the lizard Illuminati or something. Demonetized. <laughs> Why, uh. Matt? Why? <laughs> we were already skating close to that with the whole like talking about a new world order thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there are worlds and worlds have orders and sometimes a new order comes about. So, yeah, it's in- it's interesting how. Um, authoritarian and dystopian that sounds right like the new order like whatever it is order. whatever it is what well, it, it didn't always sound authoritarian and dystopian i think if you live in a really crummy society with a really corrupt government you're like like anything new would be better than this well, it's just the idea that what like it, it sounds like the order. It's not something that you as just an individual have any kind of influence or say over. It's an order being enforced upon you. And you just have to follow orders. Exactly. Whether it be, you know, the Robot Federation or the Galactic Republic slash Empire. There's a Robot Federation? They weren't called the Robot Federation, but they used uh, robots for their military. Oh, is this the clone thing? This is the clone thing. Okay. Yeah. I well, so the, the Republic I know about that. developed its own, essentially, mass-manufactured military troops with the clones. Got it. It's very interesting stuff. Yeah. Okay. Very interesting stuff. Hey, how about the Bad Batch, eh? Seen it yet? No. No, you haven't. And this podcast is sponsored by Drake Illusion. Drake Illusion ERP System makes it possible to manage all areas of your business. It can replace QuickBooks and do much more. From automating tasks to software development as needed, it's a cloud enterprise resource planning system that allows you to have business-to-business communication. It helps you manage multiple e-commerce platforms and shipping carriers from one centralized software. It helps you serve shoppers across all your sales channels from one solution. It's an all-in-one platform for your small or mid-sized company. Drake Illusion offers a solution that grows with your business. And now, Drake Illusion is offering up to 60% off for new clients. If you run a small or mid-sized business, Drake Illusion could be the perfect solution to save time and energy managing your company. For more info, go to www.drakeillusion.com ERP. The link is below. Once again, I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Jong. And I'm Matt Ganesta. See you next time.